Good morning. Hope everybody's doing well this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Psalm chapter 121. And then if you're using the, uh, the Bibles in the seats in front of you, you can find that on page 516. And while you turn there, I just want to mention as we get into the psalm this morning that, that for a lot of us in here this morning, Psalm 121 kind of presents somewhat of a problem. And it's not a problem about the meaning of the passage or the context in which the passage was written. I think we're going to find that the passage is quite clear. I don't think it's going to take a lot of explaining for us to understand what exactly the passage is talking about. And so that's not what the problem is. Instead, the problem has to do with the fact that the passage speaks about a helper. And yet a lot of us don't live our lives as if we need any help or as if we need a helper. And so, and so before we read the psalm together, I just want to give you an example of what I mean here. This is just one example, but I think one of the best ways that we can examine whether someone understands their need of a helper is to look at their prayer life. And so almost all of us at one point or another, if we've been a part of the church for any period of time, have been a part of a church group, whether it's a Bible study, a community group, some sort of prayer group. And so I think this example uh, should capture what I'm getting at here. And most of those groups end with a time of prayer where the leader asks if anybody has anything that they'd like to pray for. And a lot of times it, it, it kind of goes like this. After the leader asks for prayer, uh, prayer requests, there's this moment of silence for a lot of people where they're looking, not, trying not to make eye contact with the leader. Um, and, and then because we hate those moments of silence, people start to think about, well, what can I ask for prayer for? Um, and so they begin to think about what they should pray for. And, and after thinking for a while, a lot of times uh, they come up with someone else that needs prayer because they think uh, they can't think of anything that they need prayer for in their own life or they don't want to share something personal with the group. And so they ask for prayer for a friend who's having a surgery or a coworker that's going through a divorce or whatever else it may be. Or, or maybe they do decide to get a little bit personal, but not really that personal. And so that they mention that their family is going to be going on vacation and, and they would like prayer for safe travels. And if, if you've been in Christian circles for any amount of time, you've probably heard people joking about praying for people's cousins, dogs, or, or whatever it may be, uh, because we tend to, in a lot of circumstances, keep it very light. And, and it's not always like this, so I'm not saying every single group is this way, but, but I've been in a lot of groups over the years, and, and I think that this is pretty common for many of us. I, I, even this week, I was thinking about my own life and seeing how often that's the case, where there's something on my heart or, or something uh, going on in my life that I don't even think to ask for prayer for. Instead, I talk about how busy my week has been, and so I'd like prayer for that or, or whatever else it may be. Um, and, and so it's not always like this, but in a lot of groups, this is common, and for a lot of us, this is common. And I think it reveals some things about us. One, we don't really see ourselves as needy people. 
And then the second thing is that we don't want others to see us as needy people. And yet, I've been a part of this church for, for about 10 years now, and I know that there are a lot of people in here who are needy, who are hurting, who are struggling. There's people overwhelmed by anxiety. There's people fighting against depression, addiction. There's marriage issues. There's loss of loved ones. There are people who struggle with anger, laziness, bitterness, jealousy, lust, greed. There are people in here struggling with whatever sin issue that it might be. And, 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 it, and if you're still sitting in the, the seat this morning thinking, well, I'm not yet talking about you, then maybe there's also people in here who are proud and self-righteous, who think that they have it all put together, who, who might think that they're better than other people. And, and, and I think that after saying that, that should probably include just about everyone um, after listing various struggles and, and, and self-righteousness. I, I just want to make sure that everybody felt included this morning. So, But the point is that we have a lot of deep, deep struggles in our midst. And yet, when we look at our prayer lives, it can often feel like we spend more time praying for wisdom for doctors and surgical procedures, that it would seem like we don't really have any reason to need, God, need God's help except when it comes to physical issues. And, and before I continue, I don't want you to think that I'm saying praying for those things is wrong. That's not what I'm saying. There's, there's many people in here that we are praying for on a consistent basis as they go through surgeries, as they go through chemo or various other procedures. And so I'm not saying that, that to pray for those things are wrong. We want to pray for the surgeries. We want to pray for healing for physical needs. So that's not my point. My point is that we begin to see ourselves as holistically needy people. That we begin to look not just with physical eyes, but also with spiritual eyes and see that we weren't made to do anything on our own. And so I just want to explain what I'm getting at here. One of, one of the reasons I think people always ask for prayer when going into a surgery is because there's a bit of fear there. There's some anxiety. Uh, the, the surgery date is growing closer. They realize that they're completely in the hands of the surgeon and there's nothing that they can do about it. And it's in those kind of moments that we know that we're helpless. And so we ask God to give the surgeon wisdom because we want the surgeon to do a good job. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. But I want you to notice something else that's happening, something subtle that's going on in the midst of that that we often overlook. And so as the surgery date approaches, as we ask God to give the doctors wisdom, if we stop and pay attention to what's going on inside of our hearts, we're going to realize that we don't only need the Lord's help to protect us physically in the midst of the surgery, but we also need him to calm our anxious hearts as we go into that. We need his help to trust him as we battle against fear or worry. We need the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, to guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Just as much, if not more, than we need the physical protection. We are far more needy than we think. And yet, at the same time, I think many of us struggle to be needy. 
people. Instead, we spend too much time concealing our neediness, and like our prayer lives, we tend to keep it light. I don't think that anyone in here would say that they don't need God, but we don't always live like we do. And yet being needy, it's our basic condition. There's no shame in it. We don't need to hide it. It's just the way it is. It's the way that God has made us. We have been created by God to be completely dependent upon him for everything. And so our passage this morning, it's going to talk about a helper. It's going to talk about our need for help. And if you don't think that you need help, I'm afraid this passage isn't going to be very helpful. So we're going to read the passage now together. And so if you're able, please stand with me as we read Psalm 121 together. It says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither sleep, slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is God's word, and you may be seated as we uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are needy people. We need you for everything. As we, as we look at this psalm and we see that you are our great helper, it reminds us that we do indeed need help. Father, if there's anybody in here this morning who is struggling, whether it's a physical issue or a spiritual issue, Father, show them their need for you in the midst of that. Father, we pray that as we look at this passage, passage this morning, as we talk about our own neediness, as we talk about how you work in the midst of that, we pray that you would you would increase our joy, that you would increase our faith and trust in you, and that we will walk away this morning needier people, people than we've ever been. And, and not just needy for the sake of being needy, but needy because we understand our dependence upon you for everything. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to get there. Father, we also pray if there's anybody in here this morning who's not trusting in Christ, show them their need of Christ that even more than, than your provision in our lives for a job or for physical health or, or whatever it may be, that they have a great, great need, that they are under your wrath because of their sin, and that it is only by your grace that Christ came to die for those sins, and that they need his sacrifice in order to be made right with you. Nothing that they can do can accomplish that. So we pray that you would work in hearts this morning as we look at this text. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so as we read the psalm, right off the bat, if you look at the very top of the psalm, uh, we see it. this is a psalm of ascent. 
or a psalm of ascents. And this is one of 15 psalms that spans from Psalm 120 all the way up to Psalm 134. You don't see it anywhere else in the Bible, but in this section we have 15 psalms in a row that are titled Psalms of Ascent. And these were psalms, if you do not know, that were sung uh, by the people of Israel as they made their pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship at God's temple there. And Psalm 121, it begins with a description of the psalmist lifting his eyes up to the hills. So Jerusalem, it was a city that was elevated on a hill and surrounded by mountains. And so as the psalmist looks to the journey before him, he asks a question. And so in verse 1, we read, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Now, the way that we travel today makes it kind of hard for us to understand what exactly the psalmist is expressing here. He didn't have GPS or cruise control. There was no restaurants to stop at along the way. When it got too hot, he couldn't turn on the the air conditioner. And so when he states in the first verse that he lifts his eyes up to the hills, he isn't talking about this nice, gradual, easy journey up to the temple at Jerusalem. He's describing mountains and danger. He's describing enduring the heat and the wind and the elements for for days at a time. And so there was risk involved on this journey. And so he looks up to the journey before him, and his first thought is to ask the question, where does my help come from? But I want you to notice that very quickly we learn that this is not a psalm that is driven by worry or fear, because without missing a beat in the very next verse, the psalmist gives the answer to his question where he states that his help comes from the Lord, the maker of, the, of heaven and earth. And so instead of being driven by fear, we learn that this is a psalm of confidence. The psalmist isn't asking where his help comes from as if he doesn't already know the answer to the question. He isn't troubled by the journey to come because he knows where to turn for help. His help comes from the Lord. And then for the rest of the psalm, the psalmist begins to declare his confidence in the Lord's protection and provision. We see, in the, in, we see this in the six descriptions that he gives of the Lord as our keeper. And so if you look back down at your Bibles, the, psalm state, the psalmist states in verse 3, he who keeps you will not slumber. And then in the very next verse, behold, he who keeps Israel will neither sleep, slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper in verse 5. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. And so we see it twice in verse 7. And then in the final verse, the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in. Again and again and again, the psalmist declares this reality, which presents us with a clear picture as to the point that he's trying to make in the psalm. The Lord will be, be, will be faithful to protect and help his people. And so as the psalmist continues throughout the psalm, continues throughout his journey up to Jerusalem, he rests in the fact that God will not allow his foot to slip. He's confident that the Lord will be watchful because he is a God who never sleeps nor slumbers. He will not let your foot be moved. He who who keeps you will not slumber. 
Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. This is meant to produce confidence in the Lord, knowing that the Lord's protection will never cease. And as the psalmist moves into the next two verses, he continues to drive home the same exact point. Verse 5, The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord protects his people from harm both day and night. And as I was studying this out, many, many people that I was reading uh, take these two verses to mean that the Lord will protect us from harm as we fight against or as we endure against our enemies. At the time that this psalm was written, most soldiers would hold their shield in their left hand while they held their sword in their right hand. And this left their right side a lot more exposed than it did their left because they had a shield on their left. And so uh, oftentimes as they fought, they would cover each other's right side as they covered their own left side. And so the, the psalm here, as it talks about the Lord being a shade on our right hand, uh, describes the Lord as the one who stands on our right side, protecting us, shading us from any harm that might come upon us. And so we see with each verse, the psalmist continues to drill home one truth about God. Again and again, we are reminded exactly where our help comes from. And nothing changes as we move into the final verses. In fact, the psalmist almost broadens his perspective to include any and every occasion that we might find ourselves in. And so, in a sense, the psalm is not just a psalm that is simply to be sung as uh, the people make their way up to the temple at Jerusalem. Instead, it's a psalm which encourages all God's people at all times to rest in the Lord's protection and care. And it's important for us to understand that because otherwise we might read the psalm and think to ourselves that it has nothing to do with us since it was written for those making a journey to the temple at Jerusalem. But in the final verses, the psalmist broadens his, his perspective to include any and every occasion, any occasion that God's people might find themselves in. And so he says, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. There is no occasion in which the people of God need to worry about the Lord's protection over their life. It is constant in every occasion. Now, I know that I, I, I flew very quickly through the psalm, but we're not done yet because one of the things as I was reading and meditating and praying on this passage this week as I was preparing, one of the things that I anticipated might be going on in people's minds has to do with the fact that if the Lord will indeed protect his people in any and every occasion, why do we experience harm? What about the surgery that doesn't go well? What, what about the times when harm does fall upon God's people? If, if we just stop for a moment and think about church history, it is filled with massacre, with murder, torture, death, 
A few years ago, I read uh, John Fox's Book of Martyrs. In, in that book, over 500 pages filled with story after story of God's people seeking to walk humbly with him and yet experiencing terrible and painful deaths because of their faith in Christ. Where is the Lord's help and protection in those moments? And then we think about our own lives. The loss of a job, the diagnosis of cancer. Is Psalm 121 still true for the believer in those moments as well? Because we don't always feel like it's true when we look at the circumstances of our lives. There, there are times when it feels like the Lord is far off, unengaged in our affairs. And we ask the question, where does my help come from? And it doesn't seem like there's any help coming. And yet, Psalm 121 is a promise. There, there are times, uh, it, it does say that the Lord uh, will be our helper. It doesn't say that the Lord might help us. It doesn't say he might not let our foot be moved. It says he will do these things. But here, here I think is the problem when we look at that, what, what might seem to be like a contradiction. Because I think for a lot of us, we have an idea in our heads as to what the Lord's protection should look like in our lives. And we don't understand completely what it means for the Lord to be our keeper. Does it mean that everything in life is going to go smoothly? That we're never going to experience any form of harm whatsoever? That's what a lot of people think. The, the, this past uh, Thursday, our community group, we watched this documentary. It's a, it's a documentary that came out earlier this year. It's titled The American Gospel. And so our community group gathered together to watch this. And, and, and the documentary kind of traces some of the false teachings that are coming out of so many churches in America, if you can even call them churches. And their message is that if you believe in Jesus, nothing bad is going to happen to you. Nothing bad will ever happen. You'll prosper. You'll have everything that you could ever want. And, and if something bad does happen... It's because you didn't have enough faith, because God would never allow anything bad to happen to his people. He doesn't want anything, any harm whatsoever to come to his people. But is that what we really see in the Bible? I think we could pick any number of people in the Bible and look at their life and see the terrible hardship that they faced. I think about the life of, of Joseph. And we're not going to turn there in our Bibles. It's, a, it's a, quite a long passage, but I just want to recap the story for you real quick so that you can get an idea of what I'm talking about here. So this guy is the favorite son of his father, Jacob, and he's got a lot of other brothers. And one day, out of jealousy, his brothers grab him, they throw him in a pit, they, they take his robe, they tear it, they sprinkle blood on it, uh, and then they take the... The, the robe back to their father and, and say that, that uh, Joseph was killed by a wild animal. And so Joseph is sitting there in, uh, in this pit. And that's just the beginning of the story. But let me stop there for a second and ask a question. As Joseph sits there in the pit, wondering what's going to happen to him, do you think that he could sing the words of Psalm 121? I think if it were me, I know I would probably be struggling to believe Psalm 121 to be true. But let's say for a moment that Joseph did believe. Let's say he had greater faith than I do. He did believe in God's protective care over him as he sat in the pit. God will protect me. The Lord is my helper. Well, if you remember what happens next, his brothers come back and they, they have an argument about what they're going to do 
with him, and they eventually decide to sell him into slavery. And so he's sold into slavery, and he's shipped off to Egypt. Where's the Lord's help in that? Joseph went being from a favorite son to now a slave. And, and, and as the story continues, it, it appears that there's this glimmer of hope for Joseph as he begins to find favor with his new master, Potiphar. And he's, he quickly rises to the top. He, he, he gets to the place where he's overseeing everything in Potiphar's household until one day Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him and then she blames it on him and he's thrown in prison. And so he sits in a cell for, for years for a crime that he did not commit. Where's the Lord's help in that? Where's the truth of Psalm 121.7 where it says, The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. And then if you remember how the story continu continues, Joseph appears to get another break when he's, he's able to interpret Pharaoh's cupbearer's dream. And, and then he asks the cupbearer to mention to Pharaoh that Joseph had been falsely accused of a crime. He's sitting in prison for something he didn't do. And, and, and then what does the cupbearer do? He goes back to Pharaoh uh, after he gets out of prison and completely forgets about Joseph. And Joseph is left to sit in prison for another two years. Again and again, Joseph got the short, or short end of the stick. And if we place ourselves in each of those circumstances, I think it's hard for us to believe the promise of Psalm 121, that God is our helper. It's not the natural conclusion that many of us would come to. And I think that's the problem, because, because we tend to approach each and every individual circumstance as if it's isolated or as if it's disconnected from God's overarching plan of redemption in our lives. God sees the big picture, and yet we live in the isolated moments of the here and now. And so we don't often take the time to acknowledge that God's care for us spans a much wider gap than any particular trial that we might face. If we continue to look at the life of Joseph, we see God's plan unfold. He's eventually remembered by the cupbearer. He's freed from prison by Pharaoh. He's raised up to the highest position of power in all of Egypt except for Pharaoh himself. And we finally see the fruit of God's protective care over Joseph and his family years and years and years after he's sold into slavery by his brother. And it's not what you might think. Because of all that had happened to him, Joseph is able to prepare Egypt and the surrounding nations for a famine that would have otherwise wiped everyone, him and, him and his family and everyone out. And Joseph, he's finally reunited back to his family. His brothers are, are afraid of what he might do to them because now he's this powerful man and, and they, they think he might get revenge on them. And so they come to him and they ask forgiveness and they ask for him to be merciful and how does Joseph respond we I want to read this portion uh, with you because this is the culmination of all that Joseph had gone through in Genesis 50 verse 20 and 21 as he's responding to his brothers and all of the evil the harm that had come his way he says as for you you meant evil against me but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly 
to them. And so throughout his life, Joseph came to see exactly how God had cared for him and his family and many others through the trials that he experienced. And because we know how the story goes, we can go back to those moments when Joseph was sitting in the pit, unsure of what was going to happen to him. And we can say with confidence, the Lord will not let your foot be moved. We can see him sitting in his prison cell, unsure of whether he's ever going to get out. And we can say with confidence, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. We can walk with Joseph through the famine uh, that plagued Egypt and the surrounding nations. And we can say with confidence, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. You might not see it clearly when it seems like everything in your life is falling apart. But the Lord is working to guide and to direct and to keep your life. Joseph didn't see it at the time, but God allowed evil to come upon him, but to never overcome him in order that Joseph and his family and his descendants might experience the goodness of God. And so Psalm 121, it's a psalm to be sung, not just for the Israelites seeking to draw near to the temple in worship. It's also a psalm to be sung for the Christian desiring to continually draw near to the throne of God in worship. And so instead of seeing the psalm with physical eyes only, think of the spiritual implications. As we go about our lives seeking to grow in our worship of the Lord, he promises to get us there. Our foot will not be moved, like it says in verse 3. It doesn't mean that we won't stumble at times and scrape our knee. Instead, it means that we will, we will not fall off the side of the treacherous path into spiritual death and destruction. He will guard us day and night against the attack of the enemy, which seeks to prevent us from moving closer and closer towards the worship of the Lord. This, is a, this is psalm is a reminder to God's people that God will watch over them as they journey throughout life. To the present-day reader of Psalm 121, we hear an echo of Jesus' words in the high priestly prayer. If you'll read that with me in John 17, it says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. This is good news for the Christian. God has promised to protect his people from harm. However, as we look to the overarching plan of God for our lives, as we see it in Scripture, we discover a wonderful reality. Although God can and does oftentimes protect us from physical harm, 
through Christ's work on the cross, the people of God are able to experience an even greater confidence in God's protection over them. I want you to think about it this way. Out of all the things that could happen to believers, what is the worst thing that could ever happen? It's not the death of someone we love. It's not the loss of material possessions or the burdens of losing a job or years of struggling with physical pain in our bodies or suffering for the sake of Christ. None of those things are the worst thing that could happen. The worst thing that could ever happen is for God to stop loving us, for God to turn his face away from us. And Psalm 121, as well as so many other passages in Scripture, give us the confidence that because we are anchored to Christ, we will never lose God's loving care over us. According to Romans 8, the worst possible thing that could ever happen to us will never happen to us. It says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so if we look with New Testament eyes, understanding the realities of the gospel— we know this happens only because of the work of Christ. He is guarding us. He will not let us go. The Lord is our keeper. And with this reality before us, we can look back into the physical imagery that we see in Psalm 121, and we know that the psalm is not primarily a psalm of physical protection. Although we can and should pray for physical help, we can see that the successful journey of Psalm 121 is that the Lord will be faithful to draw us further and further into his presence so that we might worship and enjoy him. Much like the psalmist looked forward to God's protective care as he drew near to God's temple in Jerusalem to worship the Lord there. And so as we, as we start to come to a close, I just want to leave you with one more example that I came across in my studies this week uh, that I thought was very, very helpful. This comes from a book by Paul Miller. It's a book titled A Praying Life. And uh, in one of the chapters in the book, he writes about uh, how his wife, Jill, was pregnant with one of their children, Kim. And, and during the pregnancy, her, her psalm of prayer that she prayed again and again was Psalm 121. And so I'm going to summarize parts of it because it's a longer chapter, and then I'll read parts of it. But just kind of listen and follow along as I go through this. So um, as they're going through this pregnancy, uh, Jill is continually praying to the Lord, asking God to keep this baby from harm. And yet, when Kim, their daughter, was born, they, they had a very negligent doctor who gave uh, Kim too much of a certain drug um, that induced labor, left the, the room, and, and never came back. Never came back. Very negligent doctor. And, and, and so they start to have this baby, and Kim, the baby, this child, was born blue. And they instantly knew that something was wrong with her. Uh, she did live Kim lived, but she suffered from many disabilities. And they had no idea whether she was hurt from the, the birth um, or, or whether she had some, some type of disorder. Uh, they, they were operating in the dark. And for the first 19 years of Kim's life, they had no clue what the real problem was. 
And, and then Paul Miller, he goes on to describe some of the overwhelming problems that Kim had. She had muscle problems, poor eyesight. She couldn't speak. She had trouble breathing, especially in the winter when they would turn the, the heat on in the house. Her breathing was so bad that they actually had to empty their savings account in order to convert their home from gas to electric heat because she couldn't take it anytime they turned the heat on. And for the next 20 years of their lives, they lived paycheck to paycheck as they sought to, to take care of this daughter. And, and, and during this process, the author, he's kind of describing what's going on in their hearts. And so uh, he writes in the chapter, he says, it was agony, especially for Jill, his wife. She had prayed that God would, would keep Kim from harm, but we were holding a harmed child. It would have been easier for us if Jill had not prayed that Kim would be kept from harm. The promise of God actually made it worse. It hurt to hope. And then as he continues on, he kind of talks more about what was going on in their hearts, but, but that kind of captures the, the struggle that they experienced. And then later, towards the end of the chapter, he kind of comes around full circle after he's, after he's looked back on this and, and seen how the Lord has worked in their life. And he says, very early on, Jill and I were able to, uh, were very aware that because of Kim, God was humbling us, making us more like his son, Kim saved our family, beginning with me. God used Kim to wake me up spiritually. I'd been thinking about leaving the inner city school where I was teaching, where I was the teaching principal to expand our tax business. I'd opened up another office and I realized that I could make a lot of money. Nothing wrong with that, but at the same time, my heart was bending further and further away from God. After Kim was born, that all evaporated. Then he, then he continues and he says, remember Kim's seasonal breathing problem? Ten years later, when we sold our house, we discovered that our gas furnace had been improperly installed. Kim's weakened condition had made her particularly susceptible to the effects of carbon, mono carbon monoxide gas that was filling our house, our house. Kim kept us from harm. Years later, when Kim was about 20, I was sitting at the dining room table writing a Bible study on Psalm 121 that I was going to teach in our small group. I'd forgotten about Jill's Psalm 121 prayer. I looked up from the table and said, Jill, God did it. He kept us from all harm. He did Psalm 121. We had thought the harm was a daughter with disabilities, but this was nothing compared to the danger of two proud and willful parents. Because Kim was mute, Jill and I learned to listen. Her helplessness taught us to become helpless too. Kim brought Jesus into our home. Jill and I could no longer do life on our own. We needed Jesus to get from one end of the day to the other. We asked for a loaf of bread. And instead of giving us a stone, our Father has spread a feast for us in the wilderness. And then he closes by saying, thank you, Jesus, for Kim. What a wonderful picture. What a wonderful example of the Lord's protective care over our lives. We don't often see it in the moment, but we can rest in the confidence that while we might not be kept from all forms of difficulty, we will be kept. 
And so with this in mind, even, even going back to what I talked about at the very beginning of the sermon, why are, prayer, why are our prayers not more centered on keep my soul from danger, Lord, instead of only keep me safe physically, whether it's surgery or traveling or whatever else? Can we learn to see ourselves as holistically needy people. We see in the example that, that we read in that chapter, the Lord had protected them physically in the midst of, of so much difficulty. There was physical protection, and yet he also, the, the author also recognizes that there was so much spiritual protection taking place as well. Can we learn to be holistically needy people before the Lord? Can we learn to be okay with others seeing us as needy people? And can we trust that the Lord, uh, Trust the Lord that he will indeed keep and sustain our lives, being faithful to lead us closer and closer to the throne of grace so that we might worship and enjoy him in any and every circumstance that we might find ourselves in. This is the drive that we see in Psalm 121, that the Lord will be faithful as we seek to draw near to him in worship, as we seek to enjoy communion and relationship with him. He will be faithful to keep us. Let's pray. Father, we are needy. And as we look at this, ver- at, at this passage, we see we are not just physically needy. Yes, we are physically needy. The Bible teaches us, give us this day our daily bread. We are dependent upon you even for a loaf of bread. And yet it also says, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have sinned against us. We are also spiritually needy. Father, Help us to see that reality. When we, when we look out at our circumstances and we see the pain or we see the, the loss of a job or whatever it may be, help us to understand that there are spiritual implications taking place in that moment as well. And, and as we pray for healing, may we also pray that the Lord would calm our hearts, that the Lord might give us patience, that the Lord might increase our faith, May we pray that we might have an opportunity to to help others draw near to the Lord through our example in the midst of uh, physical difficulty. Help us to see ourselves as holistically needy people. And Father, even as we come before you this this morning uh, to the Lord's Supper and we think about what you have done on our behalf, may that be yet another reminder that you have provided for our greatest need. That what is the worst thing that could happen to us will not happen to us because Christ shed his blood, because his body was broken on our behalf. And may that cause us to praise and worship you with greater fervence this morning as we come together to celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper. Father, help us. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.